Hello and welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode. With me today are Devin. Hi. Jana. Hi. And Denise. Hello. To discuss our latest pick, She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs by Sarah Smarsh. And spoiler alert, today we'll be discussing She Come By It Natural in its entirety, which means there will be spoilers in this podcast. If you haven't finished reading it yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. Now a little bit about the author and her work. Sarah Smarsh is a journalist who has covered socioeconomic class, politics, and public policy for the New York Times, National Geographic, The New Yorker, Harper's, and many other publications. Her first book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And her second book, which we're discussing today, She Come By It Natural, was published last October and was named a must-read book of 2020 by Time magazine. Library Journal calls it part memoir, part tribute, with a focus on Dolly Parton's identity, how she has embraced and uplifted it to the inspiration of many, a thoughtful musing on the significance of Parton's work and success, and those she inspires. So let's throw some stars at it now. Devin, would you like to start us off? Sure. My overall impression was um, that I really, really enjoyed this book. It was probably one of my favorites um, so far during our podcast. Um, memoirs and biographies are my favorite genre. So I'm going to be upfront and let everybody know that I'm probably a bit biased about this book, um, mostly because I love Dolly Parton and I really like this author a lot. She does a great job covering um, Parton's span of her career, and I just like the way that she writes. And I just really like this author a whole lot. Um, I read this in print format, which I recommend over audio. And I'm going to give this four stars. Great. Jana, how about you? So Smarsh makes her case about Dolly Parton as an academic, but also as a woman with lived experiences of poverty and growing up in the historically patriarchal culture of the heartland. Her story reminded me of Tara Westover's memoir, Educated. I like how her story parallels that of Dolly Parton's own, and makes it all seem very real. I didn't know much about Parton before reading this, and I found her story inspiring, and I now see her as a feminist icon in her own way. I give it five stars. Yeah. Memoir and biography is one of my top favorite genre, too. But like Jana, I didn't know a whole lot about Dolly Parton going in. Um, Certainly, I was aware of her decades-long career as a singer-songwriter and and as an actress, and... uh, um, I'm old enough to have actually watched the Porter Wagoner show on TV. And when I saw nine to five, the first time it was in a theater, that's how old I am. But, uh, Smarsh really convinced me, like you said, uh, Jana, Dolly is truly a role model and she deserves to be recognized not only as an icon for a more, um, inclusive kind of feminism, but she's a savvy entrepreneur She's a generous philanthropist. Um, She's a paradox as a performer and a person. She's got fans that uh, just cross the spectrum. Smarsh's book is really engagingly written. I found it a very inspiring life story of a truly remarkable woman, and I give it four and a half stars. How about you, Denise? Well, I think Smarsh does a great job of relating her own experiences growing up to those of Dolly Parton's. She draws a lot of strong connections, and she brings what I think would otherwise be just um, just another biography to the experiences of other people, including those of her own life, as is stated in the title, um, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs. Um, I would give it three stars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, genre and style of writing here. I find it hard to categorize this book uh, genre-wise. It it seems to have elements of several different genre going on. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it's part memoir. It's part tribute. You could also call it a cultural study. Devin, do you want to expand on this? You had some thoughts. Yeah, I agree, Barb. Um, it was sort of 
three parts, a biography, a memoir, and then also almost a history book. But of who? Dolly Parton or the author? I mean, she goes back and forth, um, you know, between Parton's life, the authors, and, you know, the other women in her family, um, their life, and then a broader history of female advancement. Um, I really liked her style of writing. It's very conversational and easy to follow. Um, she took an interesting approach to writing this book, uh, as you know, that it started out as a four-part series for the magazine No Depression in 2017. Um, and then the author f goes on to break it into four parts that follows the trajectory of Parton's career. Um, I do want to say that the author has no problem calling out the hypocrisy in politics and culture, and you can definitely pick up on what side of the aisle she's on. Yeah, there's no doubt. And she did a uh, interview with New York Times where she said after she'd completed this series back in 2017, it was her publisher who suggested turning the whole thing into a book. Um, so she went back, wrote a forward, uh, lightly updated the content, but basically left it as a kind of snapshot of when it was written and said uh, this was a time when the Women's March was new and we had an opportunity uh, she even called it an imperative to redefine feminism as a more inclusive movement. Um, and Smarsh talks a lot in this book about how poverty shapes the lives of working class women. Uh, what were some of the ways you noticed uh, in the book that uh, Smarsh talks about uh, as coping mechanisms uh, that women use if they are poor in America? Devin, you want to start us off? Yeah, one that really stood out to me was humor. Um, she quotes her grandmother um, saying that when she was being proposed to and she was pregnant at the time, she said that it was with a laugh and a cigarette drag. It wasn't any of this, please be my darling wife, which, um, you know, really shows that humor kind of is serves as a balm for maybe pain, um, underlying pain, because, you know, n not every woman wants to be proposed on a bended knee, but you know, it's not a terrible thing. Um, you know, joking about poverty is a hallmark of women in poor spaces, the author says. Um, and any fan of Parton can see this same theme in her lyrics. Uh, you know, humor is a, a tool that's most women use, um, poor or not, to diffuse an uncomfortable or possibly dangerous situation with a man. Uh, the author talks about um, Parton having to use humor to laugh off Porter Wagner's uh, kind of aggressive advancements. Um, when he was putting his arm around her and kind of saying underlying sexist things during their show together, um, she had to laugh it off and pretend like it didn't hurt her. Um, and, and maybe it didn't. I don't know. She never admits that it did. But I think every woman can relate to that um, using humor and pain also. Um, you know, you get your power from being feeling powerless and feeling pain. And then you use humor to laugh it off and, and deal with it as well. Oh, yeah. As I mentioned before, I've watched the Porter Wagoner show back when it was new, and, and I was a very young, naive girl. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I thought, based on what I was seeing, that, that Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton were actually married to each other. Um, but I realize now, looking back, that uh, a lot of that playful banter that went on back and forth between them was hiding a power struggle that I had seen played out in my own family. Uh, I grew up working class. Uh, my mom and my grandma both worked outside the home to help support the families. And yet due to the, the accepted mores of the time, it was their husbands who, who made the decisions about where the family income was spent. And, and uh, of course, meanwhile, mom and grandma are, are smiling and keeping the house clean and cooking the meals and watching the kids uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. It was just expected. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, that Parton, once she got rich and famous, she could have changed her persona um, when she reached financial success. Uh, I wonder why she didn't. You know, the author says that she thought it's because she feels a connection to the poor women from where she's from. And she wanted to be that someone who represented them, someone successful that they could look at and see themselves in. Um, you know, she came from Appalachia. She was the fourth, I believe, of 12 children, and they grew up extremely poor, probably something that none of us um, have ever had to experience. But um, she kept that. She kept that. You know, she kept saying words like ain't and, you know, she likes fast food. And, you know, I, I, I admire that in part and a lot. I just wanted to um, really emphasize how much she 
stays connected to her family. I mean, it's funny because she does move, you know, she moves to a different state. She moves to a different culture, a different way of living, a faster pace. Um, no matter what happens, um, good or bad, I think, I, I guess I felt like her connection to where she came from, to the people, to that way of life, has some, in part, has to do with her feeling loved during her childhood and during her time there. Um, everybody had to have in some way been in it together, you know, even though she had those experiences of, um, you know, people walking down the street making comments about, um, you know, the painted ladies, uh, or who she should or shouldn't talk to. They're still in some ways, you know, connected. They still are all just trying to survive. I think between the love of her family and between that realization that, um, there are so many constraints and there's so many things working against them that they do have to work together if they're going to make it. And I think that's part of why she, um, she does what she does. She doesn't give up the things that so many people could have, like you were saying, Devin, you know, that sense of loyalty and sense of, um, of worth that doesn't diminish in her mind for them no matter where she goes. Um, you know, she turns, she turns from her childhood. So many things could have gone, she could have let them make her give up or buy into this is all I'll ever be. Um, but she chooses to focus on those family relationships, positives, the, the experiences she gained, um, and, and how that made her stronger. And she, um, she becomes very confident instead of seeing, oh, well, I can't, or I'll never be. She takes the opportunities that, that came to her through her uncle's help and, um, and other people, other things. And she learns how to, to play the game as she talks about, you know, the game of, um, navigating a man's world, navigating the music business. Um, and she does that in a way that helps her and also helps her message of hope for women. Absolutely. So, so far, we have uh, women living in poverty learn to use humor to deflect male anger. They transform pain into power by drawing on lessons they've learned while living through tough times and and ultimately find strength in family bonds, uh, loving bonds. But Smarsh also discusses how in Parton's family and also in hers that uh, they didn't normally talk directly with each other about their feelings. Yeah, Barb uh, Smirsh writes that the biggest grievance Dolly has discussed about her childhood is that her father wouldn't say, I love you, a common cultural affliction for men of all classes in that period and perhaps to a lesser degree still today. Yeah, I'd, I'd say she's spot on, Dolly, uh, at, in this particular observation. I grew up knowing that my father loved me, for example, but I watched him struggle uh, to express his affection verbally for my siblings and me. And one of my most cherished memories of my dad is from my wedding day uh, when he sensed, as I'm sure I was, what a bundle of nerves uh, I looked like standing there uh, before he walked me down the aisle. And uh, bless him, he leaned in and squeezed my arm and said, I love you, Barb. And uh, that's one of the moments I cherish, one of the rare moments when my dad overcame his reticence to put feelings into words. Smarsh says in her family that uh, shared love of country music gave them another way to express emotions or share thoughts on difficult subjects without actually discussing them. Yes, and an example of using music in lieu of talking about emotions from the book is the song Letter Home by the Forrester Sisters. And Smarsh says that she and her mother knew that song by heart, and she describes how they would often blast it while they were driving down the highway with the windows down and singing to it, and that it was used as a means to communicate indirectly with each other when they couldn't talk about those feelings openly. And in the song, a couple of the lyrics say, we raise our kids and our genes still fit, and sometimes we go out at night. And Smarsh is pointing out that her mother knew and was conveying to her through the language in this song 
that the shape of a working class woman's body has a lot to do with her survival. And that's a pretty intense thing to take on, right, as a young woman and to realize that. And they were doing it through country music. And it seems as Osmarsh is saying, too, that working class women don't talk a whole lot about the struggle for equality for for women's rights it's actually that they put their bodies on the line they live it out from day to day um and not not talking about it very much but they do end up paying a high price for that yeah something interesting though i want to point out is um the author is very proud of her family she's very proud of her success um dolly parton is as well um but the author um, mentions in the book how she paid attention to the decisions that her mother and grandmother made so she would not end up in the same situation. You know, she really wanted to avoid teenage pregnancy, violent or absent husbands, and she wanted to escape the cycle of poverty. She, to this day, I mean, she did get married, but she divorced. Um, I obviously don't know the reason. Um, and she's child free for, for as much as I know. So it's interesting that she's, she's very proud of her roots, um, as Dolly Parton is, but they, well... Sarah Smarsh, the author, did not continue that cycle of poverty, which she made a conscious decision not to, which is so, I thought that was interesting. Yes, Devin, and to quote from the book, Smarsh writes that uneducated women have seen the most devastating outcomes of gender inequality, impoverished mothers with hungry children, abused wives too poor and rural to access the legal system, work that is not only undervalued and underpaid, but makes the fingers bleed. And I just want to add a personal story to this. Well, it's not super personal to me, but I was watching a documentary last night about the meatpacking industry. And they were saying that it's a super dangerous job and that um, workers in this industry often lose limbs. Um, and they're not very well compensated for how dangerous it is. So that's not an overstatement about the fingers bleeding. Not at all. But you know, it, um, talking about, you know, kind of the difference between though, those women who, for whatever reason, whether it's a realization, whether it's an opportunity that comes along or whatever, which doesn't make them better, but some kind of do end up the fork in the road that, um, that brings them up economically in other ways. And that fork in the road for a lot of others that, that doesn't, whether they aren't aware of the bigger world outside where they live whether that opportunity never comes along, um, or what it, what it, lots of other possibilities. But it made me think that, um, you know, I, my, my, both my grandmothers lived rural. One was on a farm and one lived, um, in a ranching community in the Southwest. And, um, neither was particularly, um, extremely poor or extremely rich, probably, um, middle or low middle class ish. But, but it was still, we didn't have a lot. We lived very simply. We worked hard. We didn't have a lot of choices. But ironically, my grandfather, who only had an eighth grade education, insisted that my grandmother finish high school. And they were married before, um, yeah, she was married at 17 and she had, um, scarlet fever for two years. So she was out of school or she had it and was out of school for two years. And he insisted that she go back and finish, which, I, I can't tell you the reason because I don't really have anybody left to ask. And she still didn't necessarily go to college or anything, but that was a big deal. And she didn't have any daughters. Um, she had not a lot of women in her life, to be honest. <laughs> but my other grandmother who grew up, you know, who it was a farming community in the Midwest. Um, my mom grew up in that. She had a sister who was in the kitchen and in the house more. And my mom you know, you don't need two girls in the kitchen. You only need one. So my mom was out, you know, driving the tractor at six years old, albeit into the barn at least once. Um, yeah, but you know, you gotta be tough. And she hated it. She hated it. She hated it. And she decided she was going to leave. And she did. She came to Denver with her best friend when they, after college and started a new life. And when I was two, she went back to school and finally finished that bachelor's. Um, you know, so there is that. And I think we have a legacy in my family of we may not have a lot, but we're going to raise that next generation up above us. You know, we're going to do whatever we can so the next generation's better. 
But I think Dolly takes that laterally in such a beautiful way, not just her siblings and her, you know, relatives, but also to communities and to the whole country. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me how uh, Dolly Parton seems to embody feminism, and yet she's very uncomfortable with the term feminist. Um, she she faces down sexism uh, throughout her career, most specifically from other people in the music business. And while she does not call herself a feminist, she certainly never shied away from telling the stories of working women in her music, of their struggles to reach equality. Um, it, and it's fascinating to me. Yeah, Barb Smarsh writes about um, the intellectual knowledge versus the experiential knowing of working women. So she's talking about the difference between the movement for um, intellectual women in academia, um, the talk, she calls it, which is the articulation study and theories of advancement toward gender parity. And while she says that this has all been crucial to our social progress as women, uh, she really does want us to notice the importance of what poor and working class women have also done for the cause. I really like that, Jana. I, I, I love there's a, I don't know whether it's a humility or whatever her reasoning or her motivation behind it. But I've always wondered um, from, like, I've also seen some documentaries and, and learned some things about her before I read this book. And I've wondered if Parton's storytelling style, her songwriting style, with the edgy yet relatable feel to her music, makes people really stop and think and also cause them to feel uncomfortable. Because, yeah, they're catchy tunes, they're easy to sing, they've got great sound, and um, but they are not, they don't sugarcoat. And there may be allusions to things um, rather than um, articulating um, quite as, as raw and upfront as they could be. They're definitely not shying away from the message. And I wonder if how, how much that challenges, how much that makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, um, one of her first hits with RCA um, is a song titled Just Because I'm a Woman. And in the song, she sings about that, the injustices between men and women, the sexual double standard that still stands strong today. Um, you know, women can't sleep around without being judged while men can. Um, it's changing, but it still persists. Um, and she wrote this song um, in the 1960s. <laughs> She wrote it after her husband expressed um, surprise and disappointment that she wasn't a virgin after they got married, um, even though he wasn't. So she basically was like, too bad. You know, that's not fair that you can you can not be a virgin and I can't. And, you know, she said he'll get over it. And obviously he did. But um, yeah, so that she wrote many songs about that. You know, her own life experiences with mm -hmm. sexism and gender yeah. bias. So it's a it's a great little mm -hmm. song. I found it hard to read the uh, section where Smarsh was discussing Parton's sexist treatment by the media, particularly back in the, the 1970s. It was positively cringeworthy. It was. It was. And, and women, by women, too. It wasn't just men. I mean, I want to point that out that, yes. um, you know, so, so disappointing. Women that I respect, yes. Barbara Walters and Oprah Winfrey, they had her stand up and and spin around and ask how big or small her waist size was and asked her over and over again why she didn't have children, you know, what questions and, you know, treatment that men would never, ever get by the media. It's, it's infuriating. It made me wonder about, um, you know, sometimes like, because I have kids in school, um, you know, they, people say, you know, those who are bullied will often go on to bully others. It made me wonder, you know, I, and we don't know, but like, what did those did Oprah Winfrey and Barbara Walters go through themselves? But yet they're also making the choice to just sort of like go back into that same um, pattern, that same way of thinking, where they had a beautiful opportunity to not. So they almost sort of the very likely bullied, in a way became bullies in that moment. That's a good point. Because Oprah Winfrey doesn't have children. And she struggled with her weight. I don't, I don't know about Barbara Walters. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think it's what is called implicit racism, where you may absorb it 
um, that is in the culture. Um, and, and even if it's a race, you know, sexism or racism that's against who you are, um, you may turn it on yourself. And in that case, I think that's what those women, uh, journalists were doing. Um, that was, um, of the period. And, you know, we still see it today as women. Um, it's none of anyone else's business. Um, and yet we still get asked these questions, right? Um, it's just because I believe that our bodies as women have been viewed as an open book because our bodies are so physically tied to procreation, um, and, or in men's eyes, sex. And just as an example, the other day, there was a salesperson who came to my house. I had never met this person before. And after seeing my children, she asked, are you done? Amazing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Yeah. What, what if you couldn't have children? What if you wanted more children and you couldn't have children? And it's like, yeah. way to poke at a right. painful part right. of my or, life. Or what if I had, what if I had like three or four kids and then she was like making a judgment like, oh, you need to stop having kids. I mean, in any way that you look at it, it's not a good question to ask, right? Try having one kid. You're so mean. You need to give your kid a sibling. Your kid's going to grow spoiled and brat. I'm like, oh. uh, no, he's not. But thanks. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's not a reason to have children. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I mean, our, our bodies are seen um, by men and women both as just vessels for um, procreation or vessels for their own pleasure. Um, the author talks about her mom working at a Wichita, Kansas mall um, in the 80s. And the the boss is rubbing up against her um, breasts, you know, under the guise of adjusting her name tag. And it just it grosses me out so bad. Um and, you know, you know, as, as women, you know, you have to use your body sometimes as a, a power tool to get what you want. And Dolly Parton did that, you know, in a, in, <laughs> in a successful way. But most women do not have that, um, that access to the resources that Dolly had, you know, the either the education or the um, financial resources or, you know, just the ability to get out of a situation, um, you know, and that, of course, falls back to humor um, to get out of that situation. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation for everybody. We'll take a brief pause here and then dive deeper into Sarah Smarsh's She Come By It Natural. Book Chatter is funded by the Friends of the Longmont Public Library. Hi there. If you are listening to this podcast, then you are probably a curious person. And I mean that in a good way. Your Longmont Library card can help you fulfill this curiosity by giving you access to the great courses. The Great Courses is one of the premier learning series in the world, and it is the preeminent learning series if you want high-quality instruction from the very best in their fields. Partnering with prestigious organizations including National Geographic, the Smithsonian Institutes, and the Mayo Clinic, the series features engaging and understandable lectures by esteemed professors, professionals, and experts. With your Longmont Library card, you can stream over 150 of The Great Courses' most popular classes, like The Art of Investing, Big History of Civilizations, and The Inexplicable Universe, taught by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Go to longmontco.rbdigital.com to register and get started. That's longmontco.rbdigital.com. Now, back to Book Chatter. And we're back. I think anybody who's listened to country music ever uh, realizes that leaving a relationship is a pretty popular theme in country music. But Sarah Smarsh in this book, She Come By It Natural, points out how this theme plays out differently depending on who's leaving. Jana, do you have some thoughts on this? Yes. Yeah, so as a female professor, Smarsh faced some difficulties and ended up resigning after being tenured due to what she called the daily grind of sexism. And she writes that sometimes a woman who knows her worth ought to lean in, and that's a reference to Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, but sometimes she ought to just leave. And I thought that was such an interesting uh, contrast. And she ties it into this 2014 Billboard magazine interview that Parton had, and Parton was actually asked if she was familiar with the concept of leaning in from Sandberg's book. And she said, I've leaned over. And she was laughing. And she said, I've leaned forward. 
I don't know what leaned in is. And so that illustrates, again, how feminist theories don't inform lots of women who work towards equity through their lived experiences, as Pardon does. Yeah, the the leaving um, theme in Smarsh's book was a little confusing to me. Um, She talks about, uh, like Jana pointed out, how impoverished women have um, sometimes only one choice to better their lives, just leave the situation altogether. And she brings it up multiple times, and she claims that middle-class women tend to stay in difficult situations more often than poorer women. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this. Um, I feel like being a poorer woman would make it harder to leave because you need money to move. You know, you need the, you know, money for rent and deposits and, you know, renting a truck or whatever, or gas and food. Um, so I didn't really kind of get that point she was trying to make. Um, but then I also thought maybe, you know, maybe she's referring more to the emotional attachment of a place. It's easy to just kind of cut your losses and get out and you don't miss anybody, um, you know, when you're leaving. But I don't know, that that part I didn't really get. I think what she's talking about is just the fact that even though poor women are going to have a harder time finding resources to get out, like you were saying, Devin, um, but but they have a lot more incentive to get out because they're not tied to that gym membership or that PTA position, that good job, their, their nice house, everything that ties them there, the poor woman doesn't have to incentivize her. So she's what they call a flight risk. And she has so much to get away from, right? It's the small town. This is what Smarsh is writing, the brutal job. An entire class, in fact, is what these women want to flee from. And she brings up Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car, which is a beautiful song about longing to get away and escape and just get out when you just don't have that many choices, which is the very fact of what it is to be really poor is that your choices are much uh, fewer, um, if any. You know, one thing that I really enjoyed about this book when I was talking about her being an academic as well as having lived experiences is that she does tie in these different feminist writers. And one of them that she talks about is Gloria Steinem. And she writes that, uh, this is from Steinem, the moment a woman is statistically most likely to be murdered by her male abuser is when she is about to escape. It's very interesting how she defines leaving in terms of gender, whereas women are often fleeing for their lives. Uh, Men sing in country music about gambling, honky-tonks, and trains with a lady waiting back home. Furthermore, I thought it was super interesting how she she ties these departures and that to the actual landscape of the American West and the personal freedoms of men, and how often men can go off and have these adventures in the landscape, and that women women don't have that association with adventuring, with um, exploitation and domination of the landscape. When women get out, they're just they're just fleeing and they're trying to find a better life. I would totally agree with that, and um, one of the the realizations, I guess, for me in that was um, when I took a Colorado history class, um, because I'm from Colorado, um, in college. And um, I remember it was with Professor Michael McCarty, and he told the whole thing through stories and didn't care quite so much if you got the dates right. But there were themes that he wanted us to understand. And one of the things he emphasized was, yeah, I mean, women came out with families, you know, maybe they decided to seek a fortune. They had nothing to lose. Um, they were coming to, um, to homestead, coming to look for gold. But he said in a lot of these cities like Denver and, um, you know, San Francisco, wherever it may have been, um, if women came without a family, it was almost always because they didn't have a choice. They found out they weren't a virgin. They maybe had been pregnant you know, whether by choice or not, they, um, you know, maybe had been accused of a crime, maybe their parents had died, and they didn't have anybody. And they came out west, because what else did they have? And they accept a horribly tainted reputation, or were in a very vulnerable situation, but they came out into an equally vulnerable situation where, (laughs) I mean, I think about my 
you know, my grandmother and maybe even my mom having limited um, career choices, job opportunities back then in the West, that was very limited. Like, you know, most of them ended up in prostitution because <laughs> what else were you going to do? So that very much, I think that, you know, that's still even even generations after who are not maybe um, who are better off and aren't in those types of situations where that's their, you know, almost their only means of getting food on the table. It's still, um, it still permeates the culture and the ideas and the generations after. It seems as though Dolly Parton early on in her career made a decision about her persona, her stage presence. And it comes off maybe at first glance as hyper-feminine, but the author, Sarah Smarsh, uh, she argues that there's something powerful going on beneath the surface here, underneath the big hair, the, the form-fitting, frilly, rhinestone-studded outfits, the high heels, all that. There's something bigger going on. Devin, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Parton was definitely aware of the power that her sexuality and her figure had, and she used it to her advantage. You know, she freely admits it numerous times. Um, she's definitely could be described as a sex symbol, um, whether she intended it that way or not. Um, she um, developed early, and she was very aware of how her body drew attention from both male and female peers. And... Um, yeah, she used it as um, almost a shield, I think, the big hair and the long nails and the makeup and the clothes. Um, she, she, God, I can't even think of another person who uses it like that. I mean, it's funny. I think that I remember um, in the book saying if, if she'd have been a man, she definitely would have been um, a drag queen. <laughs> she just, she liked that. I mean, she dressed yes. the way that she wanted to look and she also yes. saw that it, yeah, I saw that it could um, be used to her advantage. Um, the author states in the book, um, something the world values less than a girl is a poor girl. Um, and poor women are often victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And Parton describes um, that she was looking through magazines as a young girl and wanted to dress glamorously. And, you know, her definition of glamour may be different than yours and I. But um, she thought that a glamorous woman... Um, would not have the risk of being touched, um, you know, unwanted by a man. Um, yeah, Devin, so she she does write in the book um, that Parton understands that gender is performance, achieving the right hair color, conforming to a seemingly impossible hourglass bodily ideal. And she writes that she exchanges, Parton exchanges, the class-based objectification of her past for a gender-based one in the present. And I thought that was super interesting. Um, she's still being objectified, but in a different way, and one that she wants to be, um, a, you know, identified with. And um, as Devin discussed earlier in our podcast, um, Parton did model her vision of glamour after her poor country roots, especially the town sex worker. And um, that Parton hasn't really changed... Um, that look, even though, you know, she definitely could afford to uh, emulate upper class norms today, she has persisted in keeping with her truck stop girl image. She has called herself that in interviews. And, um, and I think that, and Smarsh is pointing out in the book as well, that, you know, part of that is, is being the savvy entrepreneur that she is and that she has um, become so successful partly because of that image, which she has embraced and, um, and that she has augmented through surgeries and, um, you know, and all the trappings that she can afford. Um, but, but that she has never forgotten where she came from, um, or failed to give back to that community at the same time. Oh, oh yeah. The most appealing aspect of Parton to me is her, her generosity and her genuine concern for people. Um, you know, in the last part of the book, Smarsh details what many people don't know, that she is a very active philanthropist. Um, everyone has probably heard of the Imagination Library Organization, and as librarians, I'm sure you all can agree we love that. Um, but also, in 2016, yeah, the Smoky Mountains, um, if you guys remember that, had those horrible wildfires and caused a lot of damage and, and quite a few deaths. 
and Parton gave $1,000 a month to families in need um, for six months, I believe. Um, and all they had to do was like um, submit a paycheck stub. She didn't, there's no bells and whistles they had to jump through, no red tape. Um, and then in the book, they're interviewing her and she decides to give 5000 more. And I mean, oh my gosh, it, it brought tears to my eyes. I mean, what a sweet, what a, what a wonderful person. Um, and then of course, you know, re- most recently she donated a hundred a uh, million dollars towards um, COVID vaccine research. So um, Parton is not without her faults. Um, you know, there's the whole uh, Dixie Stampede controversy that the book talks about. Um, you know, she's not perfect, but, you know, overall, I find her to be probably one of the most genuine and real celebrities out there. And, and I love her. <laughs> yeah, I have so much respect for Dolly's simple, just love for everyone. I mean, it's just such a, an, a less complicated uh, way of expressing it. She just loves people. And, um, and you know, it wasn't um, picking and choosing so much as um, finding the greatest need. And she just, she embraces all people. She acknowledges, like you said, Devin, she acknowledges her shortcomings. And I think, I think though she prefers to be the one to initiate that acknowledgement rather than have someone bring it up and have to like, answer that. And no one does. But if you're willing to to be honest and open with people, I don't think there should be a need for that. Um, but her acceptance is what makes her so approachable. And like I said, I think if she changed her appearance, I think if she changed her persona, that it would be in some ways, even though it's so fake, I think it would be changing her statement and her philosophy as well. And I think she would actually possibly be less approachable to people because they wouldn't really understand who or what she was about anymore. (laughs) Um, And yeah, she's right. She'd cut herself off from a huge part of her family. Yeah. Yeah. They at least know. And that attention she deflects into what's really important to her. And she's just, but at the same time, she's so dedicated to her craft. It's not that she's built what she's, what she has based on just a look you know, just rhinestones and big hair. She's a great and talented person and she works so hard. But like you know, like you were saying, Devin, she goes so far beyond that. It's not just about singing, even though that is one of many um, tools and talents that she uses for her philanthropic work. But, you know, she goes and, and she provides all those books to young children. They just, you know, fill out an application. Very simple. You don't have to prove an income. You don't have to prove anything. Just that, and your kid gets a book a month for free till they're five. Um, you know, she and then she doesn't want credit for it, right? Exactly. And she, yeah, she builds Dollywood, and yeah, it's you know, kind of look at me. But behind that is, um, I mean, the idea that they can get healthcare. Um, there at Dollywood, the, the people who work there, the staff, that's pretty amazing. And I mean, they're, they're getting, it absolutely is considering when it was started and, and the job training that they get. It may not be high tech skills necessarily, but it's still training, building confidence, building pride in them and choosing to build it where she did, you know, not even like, oh, I'm going to, you know, um, build it in a, in a, in a bigger, more urban Tennessee area. It's like, no, no, we're going to put this near, you know, near where I grew up so you can get the feel for that. And, and how many people go to visit? You know, it's not New York City, but they, they flock there. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. It's a love story to her it home just, place. Yeah. It, it definitely shows just the, the encompassing scope of her love for just human beings. Yeah. Um, there is a song that she wrote, Eagle When She Flies. Um, and in the early 90s, radio stations wouldn't even play this song. They called it a women's lib song. Um, but I love Dolly for the stuff like this. Um, she performed it at the CMA Awards. And uh, President Bush Sr. and his wife Barbara Bush were there in the audience in the front row. And she... Um, you know, uh, acknowledges their uh, presence there and then turns around and dedicates this song to Barbara Bush. And it is hilarious. You can watch this on YouTube. And, you know, whether you are a fan of um, President Bush or not, um, he loved his wife. He loved his wife uh, very much. And the smirk on his face, it's hard to read. (laughs) Is it, you know, is it 
I don't know. It's watch it on YouTube. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, and speaking of her hard work, um, she's done a lot of groundbreaking work in the country music field, uh, which is notoriously uh, it's a difficult place for women to rise to the top. One of the things that struck me, and um, it, it's it, it's kind of one of the reasons I didn't give it uh, a couple more stars. I feel like there was a part in there where um, I know she's writing about heavily in like 2016, 2017. You know, we had it was 16 was an election year and there was a lot going on. And she she talks specifically about some of um, the Republican candidate who became our president, um, unacceptable behavior um, and things like that, which absolutely were the case. But I feel like she could, it could have been deeper and more well-rounded to acknowledge that, um, he's certainly not the first or only president or, um, major leader to do that. Um, you know, we have FDR, we have Kennedy, who were certainly, you know, um, womanizers and, and not, um, for women's rights, for suffrage, you know, for the equality. And it showed, and they had some notoriety as well. Um, so it isn't just a political side or a p- specific person. It's very, very pervasive, Terrible unfortunately. Culture. Yeah, yeah. Jana, you had a point? Just to respond to that, um, part of the reason why she's writing with so much passion about the 2016 election is because she's pointing out how women were making progress, right? Um, that around the turn of the millennium, um, female country stars were rising. And yet now um, that is not the case. And so I think when you look at it as this, in in terms of the progress for women, that's when you start to become concerned and get angry. Um, And so, you know, to go back to that song, Eagle When She Flies, and it being what people were calling a woman's lib song, it uh, came after two other songs that featured female themes that uh, were also suppressed a quarter century earlier. Um, those were uh, Down from Dover and Bargain Store, and they also had trouble getting on the airwaves. Uh, so I think it's just concerning when you're looking at it in, in, in terms of a larger scope. And Smarsh also writes that the last time Dolly Parton had a solo number one hit, which was Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That, was in 1989. And she also writes that a recent Stanford University study found that despite record labels continuing to introduce new female artists, women have fallen down the charts since the turn of the millennium. So Smarsh here is arguing that Parton and... Other women in country music are up against a patriarchal system that is actively seeking to hold them back to suppress their voices. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Smarsh writes that removal of the removal of women from country music by male executives is but an echo of the removal of female stories from foundational and historical texts. And Smarsh calls Parton a modern-day emblem of the wayward woman the wild woman of myth and feminist texts. And she's referencing Clarissa Pinkola Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, which talks about the powerful women of myth, the archetypal woman who is the huntress. It's the, all of these women who are super powerful and whose stories often are suppressed or overlooked in favor of stories of women who conform to the way that men want them to be. Yeah, that I think there's no denying that at all. I mean, I can't imagine anybody could really bring solid evidence to, um, you know, to to contradict. With so, it's been going on for so long. Um, <clears throat> you know, our very first podcast was um, was Golem Girl by Riva Lehrer, and I just when I was reading this, I kept thinking back to. The parallels that they had between Rivalera's art professors and, and men in her life critiquing her artwork, telling her what themes she should be, um, making in her art and, and 
being again like uncomfortable by what she's drawing what she's making and suggesting she should be drawing fruit while you know her male counterparts are you know doing nude studies and that's totally fine and then here you know it it is kind of like well you know maybe they're too edgy maybe it's you know maybe again it is that uncomfortableness or just that feeling of lack of control that's driving this you know you're not singing about nice sweet things or we just don't want to hear that voice i'm not sure i mean i can't speak specifically but it's very interesting and one of the things that i wondered just very recently um in some conversations with my daughter who is deeply entrenched currently in in k-pop music is um she talks of, she's told me about a couple of instances where some either girl bands or individual women artists have just gotten fed up with whatever it was whatever treatment or you know not getting the um given the same opportunities have actually left and in some cases started their own company and found great success from that and i'm like wow really and i thought well you know it would be very interesting um i've always wondered i've wondered why why wouldn't maybe Dolly start her own recording company just for women or radio station ownership? Um, and, and I'm sure she's got reasons, but I think that would be so, so cool just to say, you know what? We're going to go do our own thing in our own way. And here we are and we're going to be heard. We know that sometimes a book like this can, can spur further interest in a person. Uh, if you're enjoying She Come By It Natural, and you'd like to dive in a little deeper with Dolly Parton, uh, we've got a suggestion for you, Devin. Yeah, if um, if you guys want to learn more about Dolly and the history of her songs, um, I recommend the book Dolly Parton, Song Teller, My Life and Lyrics by Robert Orman and Dolly Parton as well. Um, they She goes through the majority of her songs and she gives a little background. She, you know, it, ha- it contains the lyrics and then she gives a little background of why she wrote that song and a little bit of a history of it. And it's just, it's really, really interesting. And there's lots of pictures in it of her when she's very young and her extremely handsome husband. Um, um, so it, yeah, both of these books were, were a unique format and I, I highly recommend reading them together. Great. Well, thank you, Devin, Jana, and Denise for a great discussion of Sarah Smarsh's She Come By It Natural. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. For April's Book Chatter episode, we've chosen the graphic novel Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. Print copies are available for checkout at the library, and the ebook version can be borrowed online from the Front Range Downloadable Library. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. Read the book, join the conversation. Submit your comments and questions online by email or voicemail. You'll find details on how to do this in our program notes. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to Book Chatter. See you in April for our next episode of Book Chatter, the book club for busy people. Bye-bye.